Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the People Processes Podcast, where we dive deep into the tools, laws, and yes, processes that you need to know in order to scale and grow your organization. On this podcast, we help you structure your business processes to make your people your organization's greatest competitive advantage. Don't forget, you can find us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much any podcatcher of your choice. You can also subscribe at peopleprocesses.com, which will give you exclusive subscriber-only content. Here is your host, Rami Alajil, author and CEO of People Processes. Welcome to the People Processes Podcast. I'm your host, Rami Alijil, CEO of People Processes. Today, we're going to untangle the intricate web of regulations affecting our work lives because we're diving into the pivotal updates of the Fair Labor Standards Act and their profound implications on worker classification. This topic is a cornerstone for both businesses and workers as it influences critical aspects like minimum wage, overtime, and other employment rights. Understanding these changes is vital for compliance operational adaptability, and the safeguarding of worker benefits. Join as we explore the developments and their impact on the economic landscape. Let's give a little history first. The Fair Labor Standards Act, FLSA, was established in 1938. It is the foundational labor legislation in the United States. Its primary objective is to set a minimum wage, mandate overtime pay, and delineate the differences between employees and independent contractors. By default, all workers are employees, and all employees are entitled to the 40-hour workweek, overtime, and minimum wage. The FLSA goes on to define the exceptions to that rule. The key items we're discussing here is workers who are not employees, but instead independent contractors, and therefore don't fall under the regulation. Other items around people who are employees but don't fall under that are called FLSA-exempt employees is for a whole other video. Here's what's going on. The FLSA's independent contractor rule has gone uh, has undergone a significant legal development. Recently, the Biden administration uh, had some decisions that made some major changes concerning that independent contractor rule. Effectively, it's a reinstatement. It puts in place the criteria outlined before the 2021 rule that is now in effect. It impacts the classification of workers across all industries. What happens now is businesses and workers must pay close attention to the six-factor economic reality test when determining employment status, as this ruling emphasizes the importance of a totality-of-the-circumstances classification decision. The prior rule allowed for a two-factor probative test, basically two questions, yes or no. If they both agreed, you didn't have to go on and do the remaining four items. Now we're going back to where all six factors matter, and you need to look at them in the totality uh, to determine the economic reality of the relationship. You got to check all six and use that to assess what's actually happening based on the totality of the circumstances. To a degree, it's a bit grayer. It's a bit, there's a bit more wiggle room. On the other hand, because now all six are in effect, you have to be a little bit more careful about making sure these people are well defined as an independent contractor, if that's what you're going for. The test is called the economic reality test, and it's a multifaceted analysis, and it's used to determine whether a worker is an uh, employee 
that they're, whether they're economically dependent on the employer, that's what an employee is, or in business for themselves, that's an independent contractor. So these, uh, this, this overall six factors where we're going to, no single factor is decisive, but rather the whole relationship is considered is going to help us figure out whether the employee, whether the worker is economically dependent or in business for themselves, an independent contractor. The test includes factors like the worker's opportunity for profit and loss. That would, if they can make a profit or loss, they're more likely to be running their own business, right? An independent contractor. Their investments in the work, the degree of control by the employer on the worker and the work itself, the permanence of the relationship, and whether the work is an integral part of the business. And of course, the worker's skill and initiative. We're going to go through them in depth, actually straight from the law. So uh, let's take the time to go through there. Let's dive into the economic reality six-factor totality of the circumstances test. First up, opportunity for profit and loss, depending on managerial skill. The factor considers whether the worker has opportunities for profit or loss based on skill. That's initiative, business acumen, judgment that affects the worker's economic success or failure in performing the work. Whether the worker determines or can meaningfully negotiate the charge or pay for the work they provide, whether the worker accepts or declines jobs or chooses the order or time in which the jobs are performed, whether the worker engages in marketing, advertising, accounting uh, of their own books, other efforts to expand their business or secure more work, whether the worker makes decisions to hire others, purchase materials and equipment, or rent space at their own cost. If the worker has none of those, if they have no opportunity for profit or loss, then this suggests they're an employee. Some decisions that a worker uh, can do to affect the amount of pay that a worker receives, such as the decision to work more hours or take more jobs when, fixed a, when paid a fixed rate per job or uh, per hour, those don't reflect on the exercise of managerial skill indicating independent contractor status under this. So it's they got to make smart decisions that make them more or less money or dumb decisions that make them less money. That's the opportunity for profit or loss, depending on managerial skill. This used to basically be the probative, one of the two probative factors, but now it's one of the six totality of the circumstances items. But still, this is a key one. The second, investments by the worker and by the potential employer. This factor considers whether any investments by a worker are capital or entrepreneurial in nature. Costs to a worker of tools and equipment to perform a specific job, costs of the worker's labor, and costs that the potential employer imposes unilaterally are not evidence of capital or entrepreneurial investment, and they indicate employee status. But investments that are capital in nature, such as uh, that, that, that generally support that independent business and serve a business-like function, such as increasing the worker's ability to do different or more types of work, reducing costs, extending market reach. Those are all reasonable investments that show an independent contractor status. They should be considered on a relative basis with the potential employer's investments in its overall business. The worker's investments don't need to be equal to the potential employer's investments, and they're not compared in terms of dollar value uh, or sizes. Instead, the focus should be on comparing the investments to determine whether the worker is making similar types as the potential employer, even if on a smaller scale, to suggest that the worker is operating independently. That would indicate independent contractor status. My clients, I'm an HR company, right? They hire me. They have accounting. We have accounting. They have marketing. We have marketing. 
They have finance. We have finance. These sorts of investments are uh, things that I have to spend money on. I buy laptops for my staff. They buy laptops for their staff. That all implies that I'm in, that this is a business relationship. And that's what you should be looking at with your independent contractors. Buying a specific tool, one-off, probably isn't a good example. What you want to be looking for are business entrepreneurial capital investments. Three, degree or permanence of the work relationships. This factor weighs in favor of the worker being an employee when the work relationship is indefinite in duration, continuous, or exclusive of work for other employee employers. It weighs in favor of the worker being an independent contractor when the relationship is definite uh, in duration, non-exclusive, project-based, or sporadic, uh, based on the worker being in business for themselves and marketing their services and labor to multiple entities. This may include regularly incurring, regularly occurring fixed periods of work, uh, though seasonal and temporary work by its nature doesn't necessarily indicate independent contractor status. The bottom line here is that most of the time when you hire an independent contractor, it's for a defined thing and period. For example, if you were to hire somebody to paint your office uh, or to come and restripe your parking lot or to repair your car or all these other things or a lawyer to handle a case or a person to build your website, you can see how all these are definite periods where we want something done by a certain time. Hiring someone and saying, come work for me, you know. We'll figure out what you do. That's likely indefinite. You're trying to build a long-term relationship where this person does things for you, whatever they are. It's more like an employee. Factor four, the nature and degree of control. This factor, this used to be a probative factor. Very important. The factor considers the potential employer's control over the performance of work and the economic aspects of the working relationship. Facts relevant to the potential employer's control over the worker include whether the employer sets the worker's schedule, supervises the performance of the work, explicitly limits the ability of the worker to work for others. Um, it could also include whether the potential employer uses technological means to supervise the performance of the work, reserves the right to supervise or discipline other workers or the worker's workers, Places demands or restrictions on workers that do not allow uh, them to work for others when they or work when they choose. Those sorts of uh, behavioral controls are indicative that this is an employee. Uh, the other part of the working relationship are economic that could be controlled by the employer. That might be control over prices or rates for services, the marketing of the services. Um, that's the kind of stuff that if you know the worker isn't doing any of that then they're probably an employee. Actions taken by the potential employer for the sole purpose of complying with laws or regulations are not indicative of control. You can hire me and we can write a contract that says, Rami, don't break the law in my HR department. If so, it's your fault, right? That doesn't exercise control over me. That makes me apply to the laws, which are quite common in business contracts. It's when you need to serve the employer's quality control uh, contractual or customer service standards, that's where you're looking more like this is economic and, and behavior control. And that's where they're not an independent contractor. They're an employee. So you need to evaluate that. Number five, we're almost done. This is a key one. Extent to which the work performed is an integral part of the potential employer's business. This factor considers whether the work is the core of the employer's business. It doesn't depend on whether any individual worker is part of 
is, is an integral part of the business, but whether the function they perform is an integral part of the business. So it's not what the employee does. It's what the job that they're doing is. This factor weighs in favor of the worker being an employee when the work they perform is critical, necessary, or central to the potential employer's principal business. It weighs in factor of them being an independent contractor when it's not critical, necessary, or a key part. So for example, I'm an HR company. We do lots of HR work for other, com uh, other clients out here in the U.S. It's very difficult under this factor analysis for me to hire an independent HR consultant. I'm selling an HR work to you. If I go hire an HR consultant to work for me, and then I'm just gonna be like, hey, go answer this client's questions, right? Can you see how that's a core part of my business? And it's likely that they're my employee. On the other hand, you, Widget Maker 6000, or website designer, your HR is not an integral or core part of your business. It's not what you're delivering to your clients. It's a, it's a support of all those things. So you can hire me as an independent contractor, but I can't hire them. Similarly, if your core business function is marketing and selling websites, right? Building websites. And you're going to go out there and, and market and, and get a bunch of people who want to have you rebuild their website. When you go out and hire somebody to work on that website, um, it's likely there, it's much more likely they're an employee if, if, because that is the integral part of your employer's business. And likely if you're in that business, you're going to be good at it, which means the people you hire are going to have to follow your standards and procedures. You're going to control when set deadlines on when things need to be done. You're going to have standard operating procedures on how you want these things built. They're likely because they're an integral part of your business to be controlled by you. I would hope. Okay. So when it's an integral part of your business, they're likely an employee. Okay. Last one is what's called the skill and initiative test. This considers whether the worker uses specialized skill to perform the work and whether those skills contribute to business-like initiative. It indicates employee status where the worker doesn't really have any specialized skills in performing the work or where the worker is dependent on training from the potential employer to perform the work. When the worker brings the skills to the work relationship and then uses them in connection with a business-like initiative, that means that they're likely an independent contractor. So again, lots of HR knowledge, lots of HR skill. You bring me in and then I'm doing HR consulting work. It's like, it's more likely that that's a skilled thing that you've hired a contractor for. Whereas data entry, I have staff who can do data entry. If you hire, if you hire us, we're going to do a lot of data entry as part of our HR work. We got to get all that information in the system, but that's not the that's, that's a low skill work. And it's much more likely if you just hired a bunch of data entry clerks, they wouldn't be independent contractors. They're not investing in their own pieces. They don't have enough. Um, they're going to fail other factors, but more importantly, in, in this specific factor, they're not bringing any skill to the position. This gets around things like law work, CPAs, right? They're bringing a ton of skill to the position. Even if you're paying them by the hour, the relationship's indefinite. Um, maybe, you know, they're an outside counsel for you and they only have one or two other clients, but you know, they really kind of work from home. Like they really mainly work for you. The fact that they're lawyers and they have a huge amount of skill that they've invested in, they've spent a lot of time getting their degrees. It's more likely, again, you have to look at it from a totality of the circumstances that they're an independent contractor, highly skilled, 
more likely to be independent contractors. Does that make sense? Okay. Those are the six factors, and you want to go through them. Opportunity for profit or loss, investment by the worker and the employer, permanence of the worker relationship, working relationship, the degree of control, both economic and behavioral, the integral part of the business, and then skill and initiative. Those six items, you have to look at each one for independent contractors and write down whether it leans towards them being an IC or an employee, and then come to a conclusion. These changes that have just gone into, well, they go into effect in March of 2024, if you're uh, watching this much later, these changes aren't a huge deal. They go back to where we were in 2020. Okay, it's not that big of a deal. They've done a better job, I think, of defining these six factors compared to back then, but it's really not that different. It is different from where we were in 2021. So if you've been an independent contractor for a long time, if you've, you know, if your position's that way, you're probably just fine. Uh, it's only if maybe that you became an independent contractor under the Trump administration rulings in 2021 that you need to reanalyze this. Uh, for our clients, we've actually been running both tests for quite some time, um, and so we're relatively confident in our analysis for those. But if you're one of our clients and you're listening and you've gone through these in your head and you see an issue, please reach out to your HR business partner. We'd love to step back in, reanalyze your independent contractor list. Not a problem. If you're not our client, check us out at peopleprocesses.com. Love the opportunity to work with you. Uh, and in the meantime, get out there, have a great day, and get your work done. I look forward to hearing from you soon. Drop any questions in the comments or uh, message us at People Processes, and I'd be happy to help. Talk to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Check us out on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at People Processes. Go to peopleprocesses.com, subscribe, and get some of our subscriber-only content. And if you got something out of this, make sure you share it with anyone you know. Thank you for tuning in. Now it's time for you to go out there, have a great day, and get your work done.